Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Uh, and tonight we will be bringing to you episode thirty-nine, the top five summer movies. Before we get into talking about some of these summer movies, Frank, I just wanted to talk a little bit about last week. Um, <clears throat> you actually listened to the podcast. You said the majority of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what were your feelings on that after the fact? I think if we do it again, we have to refine the format a little bit, especially early on, because right. the first like 20-ish minutes are difficult to listen to because there's really long lulls, yeah. which I suppose if you're watching along with the movie, maybe, maybe wouldn't be that bad. Um, and honestly, the thing that really helps it the most is your um, tablet, like you losing your broadband on your tablet and uh-huh. me having to call out. Like, right. all the people's names. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> because then it just, like, it gets ridiculous after that point where you can hear, like, you can hear the struggle in us to, like, suck down that many drinks. Yeah. Um. I, um, I, I just know that, like, it was a really weird process because I got drunk during the podcast. Yeah, same here. But I swear, like, within an hour after the podcast was over, I was mostly fine. Yeah. So I was I, just exhausted. I feel the same way. It wasn't, like, a very good drunk, necessarily. <laughs> like, it wasn't a good drinking experience, necessarily. So it was because... Although was, I enjoyed doing it. Right, right. It was a fun time. It was because yeah. we were drinking... You were being forced to drink. You weren't drinking right. at your own pace. Yeah. So you couldn't sit there and just, like, casually sip on your drink and have a conversation. It was like, you know and bogart would go off with like six names and you'd be right. dead yeah it made me really bloated too like i think i think if we do it again we got to find something else to drink that's not carbonated perhaps yeah um because that was a mess and again i think we need to actually like sit down and say like okay i found it really hard to talk a it, lot of times you in get, between all the drinks so you're trying to bring up like salient points about the movie right and you just get cut off by oh my god Oh my God, Joe Brody, Joe Brody. Uh, right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, but I also was losing my knowledge as it was going along too. Like I just couldn't focus enough to and like actually. You started think. mispronouncing things really bad. Yeah. Well, that can happen without drinks though sometimes. Right. Cause too. you got Shyamalan. I can, what did you call like, you that called, was before we even started. Right, Shyamalan. I can't Sh- remember what you said. Right, I can't remember what I said. Chatman or something like that. It's really funny. But yeah. Cause it's like, I know I didn't listen to, the whole thing i just like listened to like little parts as i was doing the post pro like the process yeah. and um like i know at one point like you brought up something like about what was farewell my lovely like or something like that like no the long goodbye what was the long goodbye based off of and right. i was like i don't know was it farewell my lovely and it's like i listened to it and this is like two hours later and i was like idiot it's the long goodbye like i know that but it's like it was the actual book the long right goodbye. but it's like I just couldn't think because, like, it's just, it was too rapid. Like, the number of drinks and, yeah. like, you know, people yelling things out and laughing. and. So, my only question is, like, I think I find it funny because, like, I was there. Sure. I don't know how well it translates right. beyond that. Yeah. I mean, it might just be a fun thing to do, like, without recording it at some point. But I don't know whatever, what movie, like, would constitute that kind of drinking yeah, game again. right, yeah. No. Or maybe just sitting here, like, drinking and talking about movies and then... Yeah, maybe, yeah. Having, like, an actual, like... Yeah. I, I definitely think that, like, anything like that with a watch-along, definitely, I've realized now, has to have some scripted. Mm-hmm. 
like moments the uh, not that it can be extemporaneous but at least like bullet points of like, right. kind of things to talk about at different times this is what i want to say about this yeah. movie and then you work and it if in. there would have been more forethought put into it it would have been a good thing for aiden like to have, right the sad like, thing you know. is is i actually like so i you know i watched it the day before mm-hmm. and actually had things i wanted to talk about in that movie yeah and by the time we get to like the 25 minute mark like i'm already yeah halfway drunk and just trying to like live right yeah it so. was a, it was it was a rough couple hours even though it was fun yeah like it was um it was something different um, i feel good that i survived it yeah yeah no absolutely i um 300 drinks later <laughs> yeah was... um well this week we're back to our old i guess boring <laughs> top right. five format so, for things and like i said at the beginning uh we're doing uh, which I guess is appropriate. The very first episode, of July, we're doing the top five summer movies. Frank, did you want to go ahead and explain a little bit about uh, how this list came about? Because it was actually a friend of yours that suggested something, yeah. and then it kind of evolved from there, right? So my friend Karthik was one of the first people that actually that I knew that listened to the show outside of like our core group of like you know close like social friends. Um, and one of his first requests, and this is in like back in like January or February um, had requested that we do Jaws. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to think like, what's a list that Jaws falls on, you know? And Jaws to me is like always been for my entire life, like one of the quintessential summer movies because it just feels like summer when you're watching it, like the stuff at the beach, the way they film that stuff. Um, the way he films in the water, like, there's a lot of stuff that's just, and we'll, we'll talk about it, you yeah, know, obviously, sure. when we get to that movie, but, so I tried to find movies, these aren't necessarily, like, the best movies that take place in summer, or the best movies that came out in summer, they're just the movies that, to me, like, evoke the summer, and make me think of, like, you know, what I like the most about summer and whatnot, so. So it's not, like, Independence Day... Right, like being a block. It's not blockbuster yeah. until the summer. It's not right. Um, yeah, even though Independence Day takes place in summer, like it doesn't make me think of the summer at all when I think about that movie. It makes me think about waiting in line for forty-five minutes at Regal to make sure I got a good seat because it was the archaic days before you could reserve your seats. Sure. Uh, so was there things on this list that came close to making and didn't? So one crazy summer will always come close to making any list that has anything to do with like summer or teens or John Cusack. Yeah, madcap comedy. Right. Um, but I nixed it on a um prior episode. Right. Fish out of water. Right. Yes. Was that the last one? That was yeah. Right. Because yeah, because Uncle Buck took its place. And I don't know which is which Uncle is Buck's better. Better movie. All right. Um. One Crazy Summer is a very big summer movie to me, but I didn't feel like... I mean, you had already watched it, and I didn't feel like having that discussion again, so... Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Outdoors actually came really close to making this list, and was on this list until I watched it, and was like, yeah, I, I can't I can't talk about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Outdoors still is very, like... There's a lot of nostalgia in that movie to me, but... 
it's objectively not a good movie mm-hmm. and would have been really difficult to talk about even for like in a positive way for 10 minutes as opposed to like all all five of these movies i think we can have a decent discussion about but great outdoors it would have just been us like shitting on very large swaths of that movie uh-huh. to discuss it right um There's the feel of it is very summer like even though it takes yeah. place in the like john candy's wearing a sweater in every scene even though he's like 400 pounds and yeah it's the middle of like June. But. Yeah, so the Great Outdoors, like we we both actually watched this, um, and I actually did do research on it, and until you finally watched it and realized that right. you like couldn't do that, but um, only because yeah, I don't know. I mean, it has a forty percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a seventy percent from audiences, which is kind of high to me. Right, no, no worse than other movies we've had on the list. Um. But, uh, yeah, I just did not like that movie. So it's, it's not that it's, it's not awful. Like it's not good. It's it's not, it's objectively not a good movie. I think is that's, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And honestly, it's because there's a lot of things that fall flat, both with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. And they're the Mm -hmm. two. I think Dan Aykroyd more than anything. See, and like you and I, like I, I, I feel that, um, Candy is just as bad in it. Um, there's just, it's like jokes that just kind of end. They don't really go anywhere. Like they're, mm-hmm. the punchlines are really weak. Most of the time, the punchline is just John Candy's fat, mm-hmm. which I guess was really funny to me when I was like a kid, but right. I don't necessarily find it that funny anymore. Yeah. Or that Dan Aykroyd's just, uh, he's just an asshole because he's rich. Yeah. Um, weird, like. Like, they build him up to be the villain, and then when he, like, reveals he's a villain, he immediately turns around and becomes, like, a good guy, and it's just, like, a complete, like, 180 of his character, and it makes no sense, and there's, like, four characters, or three characters in the movie, at least, that are meaningless, even though they're, like, on the screen a lot, which is, like, the youngest son and then the two daughters. Yeah. Completely missed opportunity to make a Shining joke, too, with those two daughters. Like, I don't know how. Oh, they do it. Like, I mean, visually. They don't do it well. Uh, yeah, they do it visually. I mean, that's what the, the when they see them on the beach, like the brothers see them right. on the beach. It's supposed to be a shining joke, but um, yeah, it's just bad. It's just bad shining joke. I don't know. So anyway, so but yeah, so I, I this is probably all we would have talked about it anyway. So I guess technically, oh, there's a lot of things to talk about with this movie. The honor, yeah. ba- but the problem is, it's all bad. It is right. It's like it's there's nothing. The only positive thing that I'll give that movie is I thought that the the subplot with the sun and uh meeting the girl like it's a local and that like little like romance subplot of the teenagers was okay it's like, funny I, that yeah it, like you you said that the other night when we were talking about this movie and i feel like that falls flat too yeah like, it just doesn't make it's just it's there and then it's not and then he stands her up but then they're still in love and it's like she wants him to be true to her in chicago and He's basically like goes to his dad and says, "Ha ha, what happens in the Great North, right? Like stays in the Great North, and then just like that's it, right? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, but Dan Aykroyd's terrible in this. Like, I it's it's one one of my least favorite Aykroyd's performances after thinking about it more because it's like basically up there with that and Doctor Detroit. Because I do not like Doctor Detroit yeah, at it's all. A bad movie. What? So it's it, it's a bad movie. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Okay. 
So, do you want to go ahead and go ahead and get started? Sure. All right. Okay, so number five on your list is 1978 film Piranha, directed by Joe Dante, starring Bradford Dillman, Heather Menzies, and Kevin McCarthy. It has a 72% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 41% from audiences. Hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? That 41% is surprising. Um, young couple goes missing up in the mountains and... Uh, Heather Menzies plays a skip tracer that's hired to find him. Um, she meets up with a drunk who lives on the mountain and has custody issues. Um, and they team up to go and try and find the bodies, which leads to them releasing a bunch of piranha um, who are genetically altered to be like adapted to cold water and particularly aggressive by the military into the local river, uh, which happens to be upstream from this resort community where there's summer camps and hotels and beaches and you know so they have to rush to try and find a way to stop the piranha from like killing all these people uh which they do not do a very good job of doing because the piranha kill a lot of people um it's very summary to me because of like the idea of like the you know there's like the the carnival or the fair is there and the Summer camps are there, and I think Dante does a good job of filming them on the river, where it feels like the middle of the summer, where it's kind of still, and, you know, especially, like, when they're on the raft, or, you know, they're, like, early in the movie, and um, I like the stuff, the way the stuff in the summer camp is filmed, like, it feels very summer campy to me. Um, love Paul Bartel in a small role as the head counselor or camp manager or whatever he is. Um, just as a complete, like, effete, fastidious asshole who, like, is basically against, like, kids having fun in right. lieu of, like, earning merit badges and going to bed at 8 o'clock at night. Um, it's also a really fun movie. Like, I like Joe Dante a lot. Hmm. Um, it's got a lot. Like I said, Paul Bartel has a cameo in it. Um, that Kevin McCarthy guy who's yeah. an actor that you've seen in, like, a, a ton of movies. Yeah, Dick Miller has a small role. Yeah, Dick Miller, too. Yeah and it's just for being like incredibly low budget i mean this is a roger corman special where jaws had been a colossal hit and so we got to make a movie that's like jaws but (coughs) you know corman always tried to be like derivative without being like directly you know infringing on copyrights um so they make this movie that's similar with like the threat being in the water don't really ever show the piranhas. There's some really weird um, clay motion animation, like, early in the movie of, like, the other scientific experiments <clears throat> in the military compound that really, like, makes no sense and goes nowhere, but I guess it's just they had it in the budget or somebody was into, like, stop motion animation, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a fun movie. I think it's got some really... Not really scary elements to it, although I saw this as a pretty young kid, (coughs) and it did scare me as a kid, but I was pretty scared of, like, things in the water anyway when I was young, Um, but some really good tongue-in-cheek, like, comedy to it as well. You can tell it doesn't take itself too seriously. Again, like, Corman's amazing for 
finding these people that would go on to have pretty illustrious careers. I mean, you know, Joe Dante directed one of my favorite, like, children's horror movies in Gremlins. Um, and just, you know, it's, you can tell it's no budget, but it's, you know, enjoyable. Um, the main characters aren't particularly likable, but they're still kind of funny and you sort of root for them. Mm-hmm. Like, Grogan is just a complete, like, failure and an asshole, but he still is, like, a, kind of a good dad and he cares about his kid. And right. He wants to do what's right, and so he's willing to, like, you know, put his like break the law and to go and like do the right thing and ends up like paying for it ultimately. Um, like all of Corbin, like the stuff Corbin produced, you know, it's kind of, um, subtly counterculture in the way of it's like very anti-development, anti-big business, anti-military complex, you know, kind of like this pro hippie movie where it doesn't beat you over the head with its ideology because that it's, it's hard. It is just a horror movie. Um, but still does a good job of like presenting those things in a funny way. You know, there's some funny lines with the Colonel who's like a secret investor in this resort community and Dick Miller, who's like the guy that's building the resort community and some funny one liners that Grogan has at, um, the skip tracer lady's expense. Um, you know, like, completely misogynistic and... But never, like, puts her in a position where she's, like, the damsel in distress. I mean, she's really, like, the driving force and the heroine of the movie. Um, I also really think it's funny that the guy that plays Grogan, I legitimately believe was drunk for, like, honestly, like, in real life drunk filming a lot of the scenes. Uh-huh. Um, early on when they get to the the military complex and he's walking around, like, he definitely has the sweats... And is definitely, like, stumbling, like, as he's making his way through. And I, I think that they probably, like, his flask probably had, like, some kind of booze in it. And he was partaking. Right. Um, I'm really surprised. You, you said, it, how much percent by critics? And uh, 72 from critics, 41 from audiences. The 41 from audiences is so weird. And it must just be that thing where it's, like younger people watching the movie now like going and posting reviews of it to like drive that drive the score down because when i was young most people wasn't like a movie you loved but like everybody liked piranha like everybody knew what piranha was i think steven spielberg i'm pretty sure spielberg said that it was the only um like jaws clone that was worth anything at all spielberg actually prevented um what is jaws warner brothers yeah, I think so. Spielberg prevented Warner Brothers from suing mm. Corman. Yeah. Um, well, he didn't prevent them in the sense that he didn't, like, say, no, don't do it. But um, I don't know if this is, like, apocryphal or whatever, but supposedly Warner Brothers was um, drafting a lawsuit against uh, New Age Pictures um, to sue them to stop release of Piranha. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg had seen it and in an interview or something like said like, Oh yeah, like it's, it's actually a good movie, you know, it's worth watching. And so they felt like they couldn't like go through with it because the director of jaws kind of gave tacit approval to Mm -hmm. the fact that it existed. So, um, but yeah, like I'm a sucker for Corman's movies. Like Corman's one of my favorite creative forces ever just because of his like ingenuity. And I really like Joe Dante a lot. And I don't know, I just think it's a fun movie. Yeah, I mean, most of the criticisms 
that I could find were audiences more than they were the critics. And I mean, one it's really hard to comment on is basically that it's like bad soap opera acting was a lot of people's problems with it is the acting wasn't very good. It, yeah, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's I, like, have you never seen a low, like, it's a low budget horror movie. Like, you don't get, yeah. like, Shakespearean actors are not, you know, unless you're Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing, like, you're not getting some high quality actor to come. I'll be in. honest, I actually thought it was, <laughs> considering right. knowing I thought it was fine, like, I, I thought that Dillman was good in the role of, you know, the drunk father and. You know, I, no, I thought everybody was good, and I have a soft spot in my heart for Kevin McCarthy for some reason. Yeah, um, I really like that guy. Probably Interspace is my guess. That's one. Of, that's one of them. But there's a few things in the '80s I think that like he popped up in, and he's actually a villain in that. Um, in Interspace, yeah, yeah, he's. But he pops up in a lot of things in the '80s and early '90s, and he either is playing like a some sort of like rich guy who's trying to get over on somebody or he plays like the nice old grandfather right. like role and he does both of them pretty well he's not particularly a hero here i mean he dies a hero's death saving yeah. the boy but he's definitely firmly planted in the camp that continuing the experiments on these fish was an okay thing to do sure yeah. because of science or whatever right. and that's the yeah. same exact attitude that um Oh, that one, well, I can't remember that actress's name, but she's the same thing, always playing, like, the right. the cold, like, villainous role. Right. Um. Yeah, yes, I, I, I don't agree with Sobra. Like, they're, the two leads are not good actors, but they do those roles well, and I think they're funny, and I think they have good timing with each other. And Some of the more balanced audience criticism actually lines up with my feeling on it, and I thought this movie's okay. Like, I think it's fine. Like, it holds up to some degree after all these years but um basically the the idea is that it takes a nosedive after the setup um maybe a nosedive is harsh but it's like that it that it's a really good setup to the story it's right. a little different it's a little, it's a little interesting you kind of don't know what's going on and then like basically it just becomes horror movie tropes at that point it's true yeah. but and i mean i lost interest after about the first half hour or so like i thought the 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 setup was really interesting having not seen it in i don't know how long i thought like after that first half hour just kind of like lost it because the characters to me became less important and the uh yeah i guess that's what audiences are saying like the horror movie stuff became more prevalent right i'm fine with that i don't know and i just don't i mean we're gonna find out with jaws too it's like i just don't like things with water like i have a bias against them in some ways i don't know why um i just so like water i think water is actually really horrifying like like the the ocean and like those kind of things like i'm terrified of everything that's like under the water um you hate so many movies that take place under the water though yeah yeah oh right yeah i didn't think about that the abyss Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah i don't just water just does not interest me like whatsoever and I would think it should be a right thing for horror for me, but it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't work um, for me necessarily. I just get bored with water really easily. It's hard, especially in these early days of, not early days, but like these low budget or like lower budget movies. And The Abyss is not a low budget movie, but hard to really film underwater yeah. and maintain any kind of continuity filming yeah. underwater. 
So I mean, I can see that. I don't mm-hmm. know. But yeah, that's that that that's that was kind of the main thing is that it was um, repetitive of other horror movies at times that it doesn't really fulfill the setup. Um, yeah, I just think that the script becomes unfocused after a while. But like I said, there's also like a bias because water-based stuff just doesn't do anything for me. Right. Well, you've set up your monsters being something you can really never show, especially with your technological like limitations. And then you just got to get to a point where like you maybe kill them, but then they're not really dead. And right. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts on this? No, I mean... Again, it's just it's it's a movie I have a lot of nostalgic affection for. Um, it's something that like I saw at a very early age, and I've seen several times since, and I just I enjoy it. I think it's fun. Okay, so, I like the fact I don't like this. Can sound terrible. I like the fact that it doesn't shy away from killing children. I guess like there's a lot of movies that would never like allow you to show like a child's death mm-hmm. unless it's like so profound and impactful that you know it's like the centerpiece of the movie right and here they're just like chum like everybody else i think there's a lot of um yeah okay yeah because jaws does the same thing jaws does but again jaws it's and we'll talk about it when we get there that is so impactful in jaws when that happens right and you like legitimately feel bad for that woman, mm-hmm. like when she's looking right. for him on the yeah, beach. Sure. Like it, it's yeah, yeah, yeah was heartbreaking sure. to me sure. as a kid. Like that woman losing yeah. her son, mm-hmm. and it's just like, well, there's a bunch of kids in the water, right. and Prana yeah. gonna eat them. Yeah, so yeah, you definitely you, you definitely would not see that nowadays, right? Yeah. Okay, so number four on your list is the 1955 film Summertime, directed by David Lean, starring Catherine Hepburn. Rosano Brazi and Darren McGavin has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 80% from audiences. If you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much. Um, so Catherine Hepburn plays a Jane Hudson. Yeah. Middle-aged American expat who's on her first like real vacation ever. Um, she's been saving for like ever to come to Italy cause that's what she's wanted to do. Because she's been a secretary her whole life and has never really done anything. Um, so she has these ideas in her head that she's going to go to Italy and it's going to be full of like love and excitement and adventure. Um, and for the first part of the movie, she lives her life through her Super 8 camera where she's just filming things and not bothering to like actually experience anything. Um, so she meets this guy uh, through a series of coincidences, really, who's a proprietor of an antique shop. Um he sort of flirts with her. She doesn't like really respond because she's afraid. And then as she spends more time with him, even though there's like complications, she really kind of like opens up and starts to take chances and just do things like in the moment. And just, I guess like to not to be corny, but like listen to her heart. And, um, and she goes home. Uh, but it takes place in, I mean, that's, that's it. You're right. You're right. Um, but it takes place in Venice. I like, mean, your ending of the summary was just as abrupt as her decision to go home. So, it, right. Yeah. The thing that the, the summer aspect of this to me, I mean, number one, it takes place over like her summer break. Cause she's a, I think like an elementary school secretary. Elementary school secretary. It's yep. implied or said like a couple times. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, she calls herself like a fancy secretary a bunch right. of times. Um, but man, does like David Lean do that city justice? Like it is. Yeah. 
so beautiful and it feels you know we 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 talked about this when we talked about zeffirelli's romeo and juliet and how like i love the way he films the scene where mercutio and tybalt die that it feels like hot you know it's the middle of the day in verona and you can feel the heat in those streets and i feel that way in this movie too like i feel like when he's filming venice it feels like summer. Like you yeah. can feel like the heat radiating off the streets. Absolutely. You can feel the cool of like the canals and you know, everybody's like sweating and it's obviously mm-hmm. before air conditioning and like yeah. no one is willing to not dress in a suit. So they're all like disgustingly sweaty. And I mean, while the plot isn't like the greatest thing and there's arguments we made that Catherine Hepburn Maybe not the best actress in this role. Do you want me to make that argument? You will. You will, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I love the dialogue in it. I think there's some really witty stuff. Um, I think that sometimes she delivers those lines really well. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's given a sympathetic character to play. Mm-hmm. But I think it may have been more sympathetic in 1955 than it is now. Um, I mean, a character that completely like abandons her entire moral code in order to have this fling with a married man just because she doesn't want to like leave um Florence without a or Venice without any um without having her expectations fulfilled right like she she had it in her mind that she was going and he makes fun of her at one point because he says um you know you Americans you expect to find some like thin handsome young man that just is going to fall in love with you and dote on you and instead you find some older silver-haired you know kind of frumpy man that's still willing to love you and you can't like you're not even like willing to take that chance um i like him in it more than her i think i agree with that um and i like the big characters a lot i just feel like they're just kind of window dressing i mean it's right like i like the like the young boy like he's cool like i really right morrow i like those scenes with the little boy yeah yeah, especially, like, because the most meaningful thing is he gives her the pen in the end. He's been trying to sell her mm. for the whole movie for $10. Yeah. Um, but I think it's beautiful. Like, I love the way that Lean films it. I assume it was a vehicle for Hepburn um, okay. because she was, like, an aging star and they were just trying to give her something. Um, Every bit of, like, 48, right, when she filmed this movie, I think? when she was filming this, yeah. Um, Sometimes looks much older, sometimes... Like, at first, I kind of thought the character was supposed to be in her mid-30s. Mm-hmm. But I believe the character's probably supposed to be in her mid to late 40s. Um, and, yeah, just, like, I just... I mean, more than anything, I love the setting of the movie. I love the scenery. I love the way that Lean... Like, you can tell that he he loves the city by the way he films it. Yes. And he makes you kind of, like, fall in love with the twists and turns of, like, the canals and the yeah. streets. And Well, after this movie, he took up a second residence for the rest of his life there. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's got its flaws, but it's it's still enjoyable enough, I think, and a beautiful movie, Yeah, like, more than anything. I mean, you've already said that it's, like, you know, about Hepburn, it's, like, so I'm not gonna, like, go on too long about that point, but it's, I just think that, I think Hepburn's a really overrated actress, I think she has roles that she nails, and I think she needs really strong scripts that suit her 
box that she has right. that she can act in. So like things like um the African Queen, I think suit her really well. Right. And but she also has somebody the caliber of Bogart to play off of with those lines. And the writing's extremely strong in the so, African Queen. Where I think the writing is not quite as strong here, <clears throat> and it, I think she's yes. carrying most of it because she's the the the, ma- the main focus. It's her she, journey, right? She's in every scene, I believe. Right. So, um, I think she has a hard time carrying that, and I, it's it's somebody like Hepburn. Somebody. I mean, I know. I think a lot of people like that know film know a lot about her. Like, um, you know, independent kind of reclusive you know all those kind of sure. things but it's like way ahead of her time in terms of not giving a damn like you know doing things her way and i respect all of that a lot but i think as an actress she's extremely limited and there's times like in this movie that you're right she delivers things really well sometimes and then sometimes she's it's it's almost it's like i cringe like at some of her reactions and right. stuff like that now some of that's like standards of the 1950s in terms of filmmaking of like ending on a reaction shot like it's a fucking soap opera and it's like how do you you know the face you make is always going to be it's common in the 1940s common in the 50s you see it all the time where it's like the the scene ends on a reaction shot but man there's a couple reaction shots in this where the scene ends with her and it's just like it 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 gives me chills almost just (laughs) how awful like the acting is in it so, uh, but yeah, I'm just not a fan overall of Hepburn, and I think it's really hard for her to carry this movie with, um, which goes into my second point of like, and it's not, it's what I thought, but um, Bosley Crother actually like talks about it in the New York Times. Bosley Crother. <laughs> Crother. Um, <laughs> and... He says that um, Lean and Bates, who's the writer, discarded most of the individual shadings and psychological subtleties of the romance. They reduced the complicated pondering of an American woman's first go at love with a middle-aged merchant of Venice to pleasingly elemental terms. And they let the evident inspiration for their heroine's emotional release be little more than a spell cast by the city upon her fitful and lonely state of mind. The challenge thus set of making Venice the moving force in propelling... The play has been met by Mr. Lean as director with magnificent feeling and skill. Through the lens of his color camera, the wondrous city of spectacles and moods becomes a rich and exciting organism that fairly takes command of the screen. And the curious hypnotic fascination of that labyrinthine place beside the sea is brilliantly conveyed to the viewer as the impulse for the character's passing moods. Hepburn is clever and amusing as a spirited American old maid who turns up in Venice with her guidebooks and a romantic gleam in her eye. She makes a convincing summer tourist, and her breathlessly eager attitude is just right for the naive encounters and mishaps that have been arranged. But a sense of her wistful frustration and loneliness in the city where she has dreamed she will find, quote, a wonderful, magical, mystical, magical miracle does not take hold upon the mind until Mr. Lean has skillfully wrapped her in the haunting beauty of the place until he has set her stringy figure against the impassive buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So he goes on talking about Venice some more. Um, He says it is Venice itself that gives the flavor and emotional stimulation of this film for it cannot be denied that the credibility of the brief love affair that occurs between the breathless old maiden, the Venetian, 
who Brazi plays nobly plays is considerably strained in substance. Nor can it be honestly gainsaid that the breakup after a blissful go around is abrupt and illogical. And I think the the main thing that I had a problem with is that this movie I think reduced something that was very like almost and you kind of hinted at this I think like it reduced something that's much more complicated right into something that was not complicated whatsoever. It's like what is like. I can't feel anything for this character necessarily because you said, because you know, she rejects her moral code. It seems, I think if I understood why better, I think honestly, the answer is just because it was the 1950s and she was an old maid. And it was like, this is like her one chance at trying to find like some kind of maybe, but I would like to, I would, I would like to have that. I would like to see that. Yeah. I, I would like to see the, the, the psychological impact of these decisions that both of them are making. Um, I don't know if he's really in love with her. Right. Like, I have no idea. Or like, if he's really separated from his wife. Or, sure. Like, any of that Right. Stuff. You, know, you know, you don't get enough with him, like, independent of her, again, because I think it's her movie. But, uh, so, it's like, the the I, I love the setting. I love the way it's filmed. I like little things in it. Like, I like him. Um, I just... I just don't even really buy the the uh, the attraction. No, I agree. I don't necessarily buy the attraction between Bogart and Bacall either. Hmm. I mean, I, 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 I can see, I can see that maybe. I don't know. It's it's. I can I and to have and have not I can in Big Sleep not as much. Here's this famous actress, who's like on the downturn of her career, and they're just giving her a role you know that i mean i guess i don't believe that she's that he's attracted to her but i think that's kind of the point i think he's just like this italian lothario that's out to do whatever i mean he's separated from his wife supposedly for a reason yeah he does chase her down the train at the end which i guess is supposed to imply that it's like he actually has feelings for her, i think yeah, yeah right i mean uh but again again it's like and I don't mind subtlety. I don't mind having to read between the lines, but it's like you're not reading between any lines at all with it because there's nothing there to read between. It's just kind of you just have to accept this is what's happening without yeah. any without and without thinking about it whatsoever. And I so mean, I, so it's I mean it's fine. Like it's not like a bad movie. It's just that I think it could be could have been more in terms of the substance of the movie a little bit more. I mean I understand those points. I just love the way it looks enough that i don't really yeah. care like to me she's window dressing in the movie and like the city itself is the character she's fucking third business or whatever <laughs> anything more you want to say about this no i mean generally considered by most people that aren't chris to be like a classic <laughs> of of modern of like right. you know mid yeah. mid 20th century cinema um I don't know if I call it fun to watch, but I think it's still watchable. And definitely if you just like seeing like the beauty of like an old city, you know, from that time period too, like, you know, because they filmed on, on location. So I think that's pretty cool. Oh, I forgot. Dave Kerr actually talks about this movie in three sentences. Let's hear it. it says two years before the fateful bridge on the river Kwai, lean still shows some sense of subtlety. And summertime contains some glowing moments. The film shifts to mechanical manipulation, though, 
shortly after Brazi makes an appearance as Hepburn's, you know, uh, lover, recommended with hesitations. <laughs> uh, the thing I find more interesting is what does he mean by using the adjective faithful in front of Bridge on the River Kwai? You look at the way that it's like written. I almost need to look up his review of Bridger on the River Kwai at this point. Because then he says, Lean still shows some sense of subtlety. Almost like as if there's no subtlety at all in Bridger on the River Kwai. So I'm thinking Dave Kerr might shit on Bridger on the River that's Kwai. A pretty, that's a pretty funny, uh, pretty funny diss, if that's yeah, the case. Yeah. Um, okay, you ready to move on number yeah. three? Okay. Yes. All right, so number three on your list is the reason this whole thing exists. Right. 1975's Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Roy Schneider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gray, has a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 90% from audiences. I don't know how much you have to tell about this movie, but go right. <laughs> I think you, if you're listening to a podcast like this, you've probably seen Jaws at some point. Right. Um, And I said it at the beginning, like, I... I think Spielberg does an amazing job of capturing like a crowded beach and mm-hmm. this resort community and you know again like people that are trying to protect the summer like they don't want to close the beach they don't want to admit there's a problem you know until it's too late to do so um I love the acting in this movie I love the interactions between like um uh Dreyfus um particularly uh Roy Schneider Schneider um I love um Robert Shaw's grizzled old boat captain mm-hmm. um I think it's a really well paced movie I think especially just like with Piranha when you yeah. don't like see the threat until the end or like Alien kind of like it's the same idea where if you build it and build it and build it then when you finally see it it's more impressive um and I think the animatronics on the shark are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I love movies that take place on the water. Um, movies scared the absolute shit out of me when I was a child. Hmm. Uh, to the point where, like, I had trouble going in the pool. Like, we had an above-ground pool, yeah. and I would be, like, paranoid about going in because, <laughs> like, Jaws might, like, come up, like, all of a sudden, like, ridiculous idiot. Yeah. When I was five years old. Oh, you're five. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw Jaws on Super TV, I think, like in mm. the early, early 80s in Baltimore. Huh. Um, like impeccable score, you know, it's one of like the most iconic posters of all time with the shark like rising up, you know, through the water. Um, I don't know. Just... So what are particular scenes that stand out to you? Uh, the young girl getting pulled under early on is really impactful. Um, the scene when Shaw like basically shuts everybody up about like catching the great white shark. Um, like in the town hall meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Basically your first introduction to Shaw. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh Um, the thing that really bothered me when I was a kid and it still is like a little bothersome today is the young boy getting eaten by the shark and like the mother, like frantically running all over trying to find Mm -hmm. her son. Um, that always made me feel bad as a kid. Like, it made me feel, I don't know, like, sad for that boy and that mother. Um, and again, to my point in Piranha, like, it's meaningful. Like, it's a 
it's almost like the turning point in the movie for them going after the shark as opposed to just trying to pretend like it's a one-time thing or it doesn't exist or whatever um i don't know i mean spielberg for all his flaws is still like an excellent director and definitely shows it in this movie um and it's really well written and like again like i just love the interactions yeah you can really see spielberg in this movie like why he became like the right. director Agreed. of the generation really um even though i think he falters at times later in his career like he has an excellent eye especially for the blockbuster like he he's he's a really technically solid director who can do some really he's not creative he's not inventive no. but he is so technically sound with his shots and his cinematography and those kind of things um that he definitely um you know just kind of like nails those things every time when he's, when he's trying to do it uh i really love the uh uss independence speech with robert shaw right that is a good speech um which apparently he did a take of it when he was because he was like tra- you know with this right he was like trash all the time on the set like he was just drinking all the time right um and it like led to him, like him and Dreyfus getting into it constantly like they didn't like each other which I think that energy plays out really well in the movie of them not really getting along that well um considering the characters themselves don't get along that well uh, I was really. When you first told me that we were doing this, right, I had no interest in rewatching Jaws again because it's right. in the water and stuff like that. And it still is the least interesting part to me is like that last half hour when they're on the water kind of with the shark track like tracking it and all those kind of things. But I think there's good enough character interaction even in that part that it kind of keeps me a little more engaged than I thought I would be, but I love the first like hour and 15 minutes of this movie. Like, the small town kind of intrigue of, like, you know, trying to, you know, keep the town open for commercialism and the beaches open. Right. And, you know, Brody, like, having to, like, navigate, like, you know, those waters, I guess. Right. um, You know, and, like, just him being so, like, steadfast in wanting to get this accomplished and, like, do the right thing. Um, Like, him studying sharks, like... I love all those little things. Like even before, like he, he, when he knows there's a shark and like, I love the scene on the beach where he's like, is like seeing things. It's like kids coming up out of the ocean and he like, he thinks there's a shark, but it's like, he's just so intent on watching the water, just waiting for it to happen again. And then it's like, you know, he starts reading all the books about the sharks and like basically becomes like a student. And then I, there's a lot of the great things that, about it and i think roy schneider does a really good job of playing what is pretty which is not a terribly interesting character like he doesn't have a lot true of like weird traits you know or anything like that that make him notable so i think he really brings some gravitas to the role for something that's so kind of plain um and then that like where shawl i think is the one that like has a gimme role a little bit more in the sense of like being this grizzled old guy. Like Brody's just this straight laced, you know, dude who's just trying to do the right thing, which can be kind of vanilla. And I think sure. Schneider does a really good job of still keeping it interesting. With I agree that with role. That. Um, 
So, the only thing that I could find, considering it has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, is Charles Champlin from the <laughs> LA Times. Okay. Um, I just kind of took what his, his summary of it at the end, which he says, It's a coarse-grained and exploitive work which depends on excess for its impact. Ashore, it is a bore. Awkwardly staged and lumpily ridden. That's, that's, I don't know, that's dumb. I don't know what to say to that. That's not, that's... We've never heard from Charles Champlin before. Um. Yeah, I don't, I don't I mean, I don't agree that it's boring yeah. on land. Yeah, I think that's actually some of the more engaging stuff in it, honestly. Like, his, like, kind of like the sense of growing dread, like, it's, like, happening to, like, the small area right. and... I mean, I I understand. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's really effective. I think that it's fun to watch. I think it's holds up well over time. Um, and again, like, it spawned one of the most iconic, like, quote unquote, villains of our time in the shark. You know, and sure. Bruce. Um, never reached those heights again because all the other Jaws movies are awful. But still, like, enjoyable. Fun. What's to watch. the next best Jaws movie? Jesus Christ. I guess it's the second one. I don't know. Yeah? I have no idea. Okay. I, I didn't know I was going to be asked such a hard question. <laughs> I would have prepped. <laughs> the one I grew up with the most was four. Like, it was always on television, it seemed, all the time. Yeah. I Same, same here. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen... I think I saw two once when I was, like, younger. And I don't know if i've actually ever seen jaws like three that was the 3d one right yes yeah i don't think i've ever seen that one it's been a really long time since i've seen it yeah okay let's go ahead and move on to number two okay okay so number two on your list is spike lee's 1989 film do the right thing starring spike lee himself danny aiello um let's see Ozzy Davis, Ruby D, Giancarlo Esposito, John Turturro, Rosie Perez. Uh, it has a 90% from critics and audiences uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Just want to give just a little bit of background to this and uh, what you like about it so much. So it takes place on an incredibly hot day in the summer in uh, Bed-Stuy, um, New York. Uh, Spike Lee plays Mookie, who's a pizza delivery boy for... Um, Sal's Sal's famous pizzeria, which is a owned by you know an older white Italian played by Daniello Sal, and run with him and his two sons uh, Vino and Pino. Is that right? Yeah. Um, been in the neighborhood for twenty five years and seen a change. Um, Mookie comes off as like sort of shiftless but mostly just because he's young um easily distracted i guess mostly uh possibly like a he has a, a child with the rosie perez character um doesn't really come off as a very dedicated father necessarily um at least from like the perspective you see of like her uh taking care of the child with her mother by herself um so 
it's over like the course of a day where things escalate mostly because of like the heat and bad temp like bad tempers um Giancarlo Esposito plays a character named Buggin' Out who gets really offended. I mean, mostly, I think, because Sal refuses to put extra cheese on his pizza. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, like, gets mad because there's a wall of fame in Sal's pizza that's all Italian-Americans and there's no black people. And Buggin' Out says, you know, all your customers are black. You should have some black people on this wall. Um, then there's a character, Radio Rahim, who carries like a giant boombox and plays Fight the Power constantly, um, who gets in an argument with Sal because Sal makes him turn his music down before he'll serve him. Um, so just over the course of the day, you know, Bugging Out is trying to elicit like help of people to like protest Sal's where like they won't go to Sal's anymore until he puts black people on the wall. Um, finds little support for most of the movie until... Uh, Radio Rahim like sort of agrees with him because of the music thing and this character Smiley who's uh I don't think mentally handicapped I think like he has some sort of like disorder caused by maybe like some kind of brain damage or something um he has a stutter and he's obsessed with uh Malcolm X and Martin Luther Martin Luther King um so there's an altercation inside of Sal's um Sal ends up you know like using some some racial epithets and destroying Radio Rahim's boombox, which leads to a brawl, which leads to the police being called who kill Radio Rahim by trying to like quote unquote restrain him, um, and that leads to like more like racial tension among the people gathered outside, um, which culminates in the destruction of Sal's pizzeria, um. And then it, it, you know, it burns down and then sort of like the, the coda is like the aftermath the next morning, uh, with Mookie going back to try and collect his pay. Um, really powerful movie. Mm -hmm. Um, the reason that it's on this list is obviously because one of the primary like driving forces in the movie is the heat. People trying to stay out of the heat, people like being upset by the heat, people just like, you know, like it shows them, you know, there's no air conditioning. It's people living in places where it's just fans and everywhere is hot. Like it's hot inside. It's hot outside. Um, and the heat act ends up acting also as like the summer heat ends up acting as a metaphor for the racial tension. Right. Like, well, right. like, yeah, it's like simmering. Right. Like to the point of like almost boiling. Yeah. And, um, interesting because, so I saw this movie, I don't know, when I was like 14 or 15 for the first time. Right. Um, so probably four or five years after its release. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew about Spike Lee before that. Um, I think maybe this is the first Spike Lee movie I'd seen, although I might have seen... I don't know. It probably is the first one that I saw. Um, my initial reaction... so. Like, the, the climax of the movie is the death of Radio Rahim, and then everyone is gathered outside with Sal and his two sons, you know, standing there, and they're becoming, like, aggressive and yelling at him. And Mookie um, goes and grabs a garbage can and throws it through the window of Sal's, which, when I was young, I looked at it as being, like, Mookie was just being an asshole. Like, 
I, I felt like he was trying to distance himself as an employee of Sal's and become one with the crowd so he could like diffuse some of that violence maybe towards himself. But I realized watching it now, because I just watched this yesterday maybe, mm. that it's Mookie like saving Sal's life. Right. Like realizing that the destruction of that property, which he knows is insured and he knows Sal will get paid for, is a very small cost against like maybe somebody else losing their life because of the situation. Um, you know, it's a movie that's all about like perception and how people perceive each other, um, how people perceive different situations, how people perceive each other from like an interpersonal standpoint, from a racial standpoint, from like a socioeconomic standpoint, because, you know, Sal and his sons, um, John Turturro plays, um, Pino, the oldest son, who's a vocal and like virulent racist um, who hates black people and feels almost like disenfranchised as a white person. Then he has to come into this black neighborhood and serve black people and goes to the typical like racial stereotypes that you get, like calling black people animals and monkeys and just like, it's, it's really uncomfortable like to hear because like it sounds like things you've heard like people say especially where we grew up right where there's like a lot of inherent racism yeah and things you even hear like in coded language today but like much more like bald you know like naked racism in the way that Totoro's character like evinces it mm-hmm. um but just like I don't know like it's 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 an incredible ensemble piece and this in the movie, like the number one movie, it's amazing to see like how many consistent like character actors are in these movies and like come out of these movies and, um, you know, seeing people like Samuel L. Jackson, you know, in a minor role, right. Um, Rosie Un- Perez, uncredited, I think <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Sam Jackson is how they yeah, credit right, him. Yeah. Um, Rosie Perez in her first role, Martin Lawrence in his first role, people like Ozzie Davis, you know, playing like just how they, I mean, Spike Lee really like a young director at this point. Yeah. Um, like interweaving these people like in and out of encounters and scenes and like throughout the course of a day and building your understanding of these characters as like actual people and how they view each other and it isn't until the end where like you know when sal starts using like the n-word and becomes like angry and like destroys raheem's radio that everyone turns on him that it's not like up until that point they're actually pissed off at radio raheem the people the like the martin lawrence like that little crew right in the neighborhood is actually pissed off at radio raheem and bugging out for coming coming in and interrupting. Right. Then when Sal was being nice and letting them right. have sure. a slice of pizza after the place was closed. Right. And then it's only after Sal kind of snaps there that they turn on him. Right. Well, it's the N-word. It's, yeah, sure. No, absolutely. 100% right. turns yeah. them, yes. like, immediately, right. like, switches their sides. Sure. Um, which, I mean, pretty accurate portrayal of, yeah. right. you know, like, hearing someone use, like, 
like using that word as like an like an attack like mm-hmm. you know uh sure like to demean mm-hmm. the person that he's talking to and somebody who throughout the course of the entire movie <coughs> you think doesn't even have that in him i mean like right. he you know pino is 100% like racist and right. vino is 100% like accepting and sure like is one of mookie's best friends yeah. um but you know it, there's some uncomfortable stuff too like with sal being like creepily affectionate towards mookie's sister yeah. um jade yeah and again this is another scene like when i was young i didn't really see that like i just mm-hmm. felt like sal was being nice and like fatherly and then watching it now like there really is like a creepy like sexual element to the way that he mm-hmm. talks to her um and she doesn't want to see it because like she looks at him as a father figure but mookie mm-hmm. like immediately sees it right. and tells sal you know like, you need to leave it alone um but yeah like but at the same time like sal has that conversation with pino at one point basically telling him why he needs to back off like all like the racist rhetoric and all those kind of things is because these people have given them a life right you know they've made the pizzeria and that he's watched these people grow up and so the interesting point of that because i don't think that sal is ever an unsympathetic character in the movie Mm -hmm. but you wonder is that racism there anyway and he just is able to hide it because he knows that that's his livelihood and he has to accept it right and is all that like goodwill and right. whatever i mean you look at something like like monsters ball which i don't necessarily like that much of a movie but it's like kind of the same idea like where is he just attracted to jade because of like i mean whatever they call it like the like the antebellum like attraction of the slave right. master to the slave kind right. of thing where he's not necessarily attracted to her because she's a woman it's just because it's like forbidden fruit kind of mm-hmm. and were those like are those things always just there anyway? Like, is is Pino just... Well, they have to be. Right. I mean, it doesn't come out if it's not. Right. You know, that's not, like, the first thing that sure. comes out of your mouth. And he, like, right. he says it several times during the course of, like, the altercation. Sure. Um, yeah. And because, like, a guy that is so adept throughout the entire movie at diffusing those situations to just, like, fall to it himself... Mm-hmm after he's like really happy because they've had a great day and like i mean that's right. why he even lets him in in the first place because he's in such a good mood yeah. and there's just there, there's a lot of complexity to it sure. um it definitely sets the tone for what spike lee's movies <clears throat> like you can tell it's a spike lee movie and like you can see you know the the fourth wall breaking that he does um mm-hmm. especially when he has like you know, Pino, and then who is it? Pino, then bugging out, bugging out. Then the Hispanic guy that's on the porch. Right. Then the Korean, yeah, and the cop, right? right. So, yep. yeah. all five of those different like socioeconomic and ethnic groups, like spewing like you know slurs right about each other mm-hmm. um, at the at the screen, um, and like things like that are things that Lee does consistently throughout his movies to make points and you know to like hammer home an idea which it doesn't necessarily bother me in this movie but that particular scene i feel like all of those ideas were set up perfectly anyway 
just in like the natural flow of dialogue that watching it this time i kind of felt like all right like this is just a little like over the top like i like i get it already like you don't need to like beat yeah. me with it but it's not like bad or anything um but yeah like it's really it's it's a really challenging movie to watch um i think it's really like one of the most important movies in the 1980s like maybe i don't know maybe from like a racial standpoint like the most important movie in the 1980s like i can't think of anything else that says like immediate especially from the time period you know with right. um because public enemy was like incredibly controversial and right. like people really were afraid of like stuff like public enemy and to have radio raheem like playing it it's the only music i like it's the only song i like or whatever mm-hmm. um i don't know just it's it's a fantastic movie do you think that mother sister that character the ruby d plays gets like shorted in some ways it feels Ex- like it feels explain like they, what you mean it feels like they don't do enough with her no like, i think they do enough with her you think so so it seems like it seems like the mayor of uh, ozzy davis character gets much more screen time and um like much more weight to that character than than she does and as like the elder female in the neighborhood i just i, I just wondered about that like while i was watching it like why why is she not getting as that character getting as much as um as like the elder male in the neighborhood she's not mobile number one yeah i mean the whole point of the mayor is the fact that he just starts drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning and drinks all day um and i think that that's i think that's a parallel to like maybe not the crack epidemic but definitely like You know, the, I mean, really, if you look at, like, how many parental figures there are in the movie, there's Ruby D and the mayor, neither of whom have children that you see in the movie. There's Mookie and um, Rita, right? Tina. Tina, um, who are maybe together, maybe apart, but young, like, parents that really can't take care of their kid. Um, and then really it's just, you know, Sal with his sons Mm -hmm. and then the one scene with the mother of the child that the mayor saves from getting hit by a car, whose immediate reaction is like, you're not going to tell me how to raise my kid. Like I'll do what I need to do to raise my child, which which is a scene that takes place in quite a few Spike Lee movies actually where with a mother, like telling somebody not to. Well, I mean, I think Spike Lee, like, I think it's, it's indicative of like mothers raising sure yeah like their children by themselves even though like that scene says like when when his father comes home he'll do what i tell him to do Mm -hmm. too right um but there really is no other parental figure in the movie so like whereas mookie and bugging out look to the mayor as being like a father figure you know the other the younger kids the ones that are like the martin lawrence group that are like reading the comics and sitting on the stoop completely reject him because he drinks and mm-hmm. he just wanders around and he doesn't really have a job and so it's another interesting dynamic and like I, when i was watching it this time i was wondering because in 1989 um you know that's like pretty much like at the height of the crack epidemic in like sure. most cities and they do they don't talk about it at all like there's no yeah. junkies in this movie um but i wonder if maybe that's like and like emblematic of that you know the maybe 
I wonder also if he's writing it from maybe an early 80s perspective. That's possible. And also goes into like the gentrification of New York sure. with um the guy that runs over Bugganouts like Jordans, Jordans which is another yeah, thing right. that leads to like the ultimate like culmination because yeah. Bugganout can't confess the fact that this man like ran over his Jordans with his bike. Yeah. Didn't do anything really to apologize for it and then got away with it because Bugganout was unwilling to like engage in some kind of violent confrontation with him. Yeah. And the guy says like I'm from I'm from the Bronx and is wearing the Larry Bird right t-shirt yeah. and has yeah. bought the brownstone and yeah. it's my right to live here if i want to live here yeah. which um yeah the bu- the whole bugging out thing is a, is a series of a few slights in his mind that then nobody wants to really listen to him right. or act on anything he says so he feels isolated and disenfranchised i think which leads to him eventually like as the day gets hotter and as his his temp his internal temperature is boiling more leads to all that whole yeah because he's dismissed out right sure i mean the um well both mookie sisters like i love you but like sweet I'm, sweet dick sweet dick willie is that his name uh, yeah sweet dick willie yeah. uh frankie Faison. i can't remember the character he plays right, yeah. and then the guy that's like um from the Caribbean or whatever, mm-hmm. like dismiss him, like get away from us. Like sure. that's the best pizza. We're not going to boycott that right. place. And right. Mookie's sister and Mookie himself. Right. And yeah. like nobody cares until he finds two other like kindred spirits and people that yeah. have been, you know, slighted by Sal over the course right. of the day. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like he makes it about something other than what the other two are even offended about. Like mm-hmm. it just becomes about the pictures on the wall. Cause he's the loudest in the, you know, the most willing to, like, go in there and tell him. And he doesn't even want, like, any kind of confrontation. He just wants to tell Sal, we're not buying your pizza anymore. Right. It's like Radio Raheem refusing to turn down his radio. Mm-hmm. And Sal's, like, yeah. completely ridiculous reaction to that that, you know, leads to, like, the tragic, like, whatever, yeah. the end of it. Also, one of my favorite scenes is the Korean um, grocery store owner. Like, like I'm black. Like, you're black. I'm black. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um... Which I guess, like, in a lot of ways is, I don't know, like, I don't, I wish I knew more about, like, the dynamic in New York at that time, because Mm -hmm. I know that there were a lot of, um, like, groceries that were, like, run by Asian Americans, and we have that same thing here. Um, I know that, so, did you ever read Jonathan, Jonathan Lethem book, um, not Motherless Brooklyn, but the one after that, with, uh, the kid who's the son of a painter and his best friend who's a graffiti artist. I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I read it. Um, so it's really interesting because that is basically taking place in the same time frame. Sure. Um, in the Bed-Stuy, Bensonhurst area. Right. Where there was gentrification happening, where people were buying all the houses um, and raising the prices and doing so to, like, drive out, you know, the people that were originally from the neighborhood and, like, push them off to other places. Um, and it's just, it's, I mean, it's a credit to Spike Lee that he's able to weave all those stories together in such like a small way and like make all these commentaries about like, you know, life in the city at that time. Um, the Fortress of Solitude. Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, that's That's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Um, it's in, so, so I saw this movie by my, like on my own. And then when I was in college, um, in introduction to film, this was one of the movies that Professor Haspel picked for us to watch. And our class was 
100% white. Mm-hmm. And probably, like, 40% like older, like, middle-aged. Mm. And people hated this movie. Like, this movie was... I wouldn't even call it polarizing because there was like four of us that thought this was a good movie and everybody else was like, like hated this movie. What was the rationale? Do you remember? It's too crude. They didn't like the sexuality of it. They didn't like the language and like the music. They didn't like understand, you know. And this would have been eight to ten years roughly after it came out. Like, no. No? Uh six or seven years okay. after it came out okay. so it was probably still like a pretty it was still a pretty relevant okay all right like movie um definitely like the most recent movie we watched because we watch stuff like apocalypse now and right the birds i think and some other stuff mm-hmm. i can't remember any of the other movies we watched there but definitely this and like man like i remember this older lady just like vehemently like destroying this movie mm-hmm. because of its morality and its language and mm. So it's um what do you think was underneath that though? I mean I think, you know, I think it was an Do you it's, think it's just uncomfortable? Yeah, you know, like this is a pretty Christian area and back then it was even like more so. Mm-hmm. Like very like died in the wool like Baptist Pentecostal mm-hmm. Christian and I think that there weren't many black people in our county at that time. I mean, we had well an elk and Right, but in that part of Cecil County, like the northeast part of Cecil County. Once you go to the western part of the county, yeah. um, I mean, I think there was five or six black people in my graduating class of 100. Mm -hmm. So, not really, and maybe not even that many. Right. Like, not really a great representation. Yeah. Um, Rap music was still, like, being, like, fairly, like, demonized. Oh, um, sure. Because of, like, gangster rap and stuff. I mean, that's not long after Cop Killer and all that kind of stuff. Like yeah, 95, a, a like few a, years. Right, yeah. Um, and I think it was just, like, I think people couldn't handle... You know, nobody got angry about watching Apocalypse Now, which is, in a lot of ways, like, a much more <laughs> disturbing movie. Sure. You know, be, and, like, less less human movie, like, a more dehumanizing movie. Right. Because there's a lot of, like... There's almost a sense of hope at the end of Do the Right Thing because Mookie and Sal can, in their own weird, like, stilted way, reconcile. Sure. You know, because Sal does recognize that Mookie, I think a little bit that Mookie, like, actually cares about him and was trying to. And and Sal's the one that admits, if you're going with the with the hot, like, the heat metaphor, Sal's the one that admits that, like, um, it's not going away anytime soon. Right. Like... Um, because McMoogie says something about like how hot it is and, and like, yeah, it's, it's going to be hot for a while still or something like that. And, and that was Sal talking to him like a human being, like Sal, I mean, he's not hype in that scene, but it's like, he's diffused even more so when when they start talking like human beings, like they probably would every other day. But, um, yeah, Yeah, because Sal looks at Mookie like a son. Sure. I mean, he gives them the same leeway that he gives yeah. Pino and Vino, right. who are like slackers, and yeah, it's just I don't know. It's it's I don't I don't think Sal realizes that Mookie saved his life, though. Even at that point, no, that's true. Like, but but he but but I he's to me I feel I I have this feeling that Sal understands there's things that he doesn't understand, right. Because I think he's confused. Like, I mean, that's what he... He's confused sitting in front of a shop. Like, he... 
He'd... Yeah, cr- he's he's crestfallen. Right. Yeah. So back to like the summer aspect of it because we yeah. could talk about like right. you know the small yeah. like nuance of this movie forever. I think you know you got the scenes like them opening the hydrant in the street and yeah, playing yeah. in the hydrant. Sure. You know, um, the ice cube scene with Rosie Perez and mm-hmm. you know that um she hates that scene. Do you know about that? No. Um. So he forced her to do nudity in that scene and she mm. didn't want to. Hmm. And the reason that when he's like rubbing her breasts with the ice cube that it's just from the neck down. Yeah. Because apparently she was in tears because he oh. forced her to do it. Jeez. Um, and she was like completely uncomfortable, completely hated doing that scene. Um, but I guess like he felt that it was important to do. Which if you take that like brief thing out of it where if it's just like thighs, arms, whatever does nothing to change change right Right. like it's not even like you could have just done something with him rubbing like ice on like her lips and like whatever it's the same scene yeah it's it's, the same idea it's weird you know to like force an actress into that um but you know there's that there's like sal giving out like the ices there's the guy Mm -hmm. the really kind of sad scene where the old like italian man is pushing the shave ice down the street Mm -hmm. and then everybody like abandons him for the ice cream truck that comes around the corner right um, again, like, I think another, like, Lee showing how, like, nothing can be how it was in the old days because mm-hmm. things are just different now. Like, sure. you got to, like, move and advance yeah. with technology. But, you know, really, um, everybody looks really sweaty in that movie, too. Like, it feels, like, really hot when you're watching that movie. Um, one of the things I didn't mention in Summertime, which actually kind of bothers me about that movie, is, like, not really bothers, but, like, man, like, take a suit off. You know what I mean? Like, you don't got to wear a suit everywhere. Yeah. Like, put on some shorts or, like, a t-shirt or something. Uh, like, every dude in that movie is dressed in, like, like a full suit and talking about how hot they are. Like, well, duh. Right. Like, you know. Um, th- But this movie, like, everybody's wearing shorts. Like, it's obviously right. really hot, you know, and it's, um... Yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a great film, and, yeah. like, again, like, in my opinion, one of the most important films of the 20th century. Yeah, it does a really good job of, of the heat aspect, like, visually, right. like, throughout. <clears throat> I also think the riot in this has the most energy of any movie riot I've seen. Um, hmm. Like, just kind of, like, just sudden, like, in just sudden violence like like mass violence uh the the best thing i've ever seen is oz the end of the first season of oz is right. the greatest riot scene i've ever seen yeah, in my entire really life um but i think this has some of that energy to it and cuz it goes on for what like ten, like probably like 6 7 minutes probably so like totally. are you counting from the altercation to the culmination. I'm counting from the time that Sal and Mookie his... that Mookie throws the yeah six or seven minutes because yeah. the culmination of it is um Smiley coming in and putting the picture of uh, uh Martin and Malcolm right. on the wall on the wall yeah like with all the other pictures sure yeah God, another like it's it, it's such a brilliant movie because that's another small thing where. Sal is legitimately trying to buy a picture from Smiley, like, after Pino, like, insults him and chases him off. And another small thing where, like, if that virulent racism hadn't happened, that maybe the whole thing is diffused. Sure. If, like, that, you know, 
Or if Sal could just get past the fact that, like, Radio Raheem's going to be there for two minutes and then leave and, like, what does it matter? Like, because the music isn't bothering anybody but him. Which is another reason why I think that Sal probably does have some latent racism to him. Yeah, because, I mean, he mentions, he doesn't mention, I think, at the first time he doesn't use the word rap, does he? Is it the second time? Well, no, the second time he says you need to turn that, what does he say, like, goddamn rap jungle music back right, to Africa yeah. shit so he does use rap like the first that. time but it's like it's like music it's like he says rap music and then he I think says like music music like after that it's like he but it's like the idea that he has to say that right. it's rap music is certainly like a sign that he's distinguishing between that and other music the funny thing is like bugging out is like annoyed by it too sure like right. he, and everybody kind of makes fun of Radio Raheem mm-hmm you know, there's the scene with the, again, like, the Hispanic guys are on the stoop, like, trying to have the the boombox off with them, like, playing the salsa music or whatever yeah. it is. Um, um, no, it's really disturbing, like, to see, because I haven't watched this movie since probably the same age you were, like, 13 or 14, but it was very, it was really disturbing to watch it again now and after Eric Gardner and watch Radio Raheem yeah. get choked out. Like, God, it's like, it's it's his eyes being open. Yeah. And the way they it's, just lift him off the ground by, like, his, his limbs. Yeah, it's it's really rough And his, his, like, his Jordans, like, dangling, like, mm-hmm. six inches off the ground because the one guy's just got him, like, yoked. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 powerful. So, again, like, I know Lethem is, like, a, whatever, like, a hipster white guy, but, like, Fortress of Solitude is a really good, I think, companion piece to read, like, in terms of this movie, because it really does take place. Lethem's point of view is being, like, a white kid that was forced to go to a predominantly black school, mm-hmm. and what he dealt with at the time, because it's, it's, like, semi-autobiographical. Sure. Um, And, too, what his friend dealt with in terms of being, like, more on... Like, artistic. Arti- yeah. And right. imaginative, because, sure. you know, they're into comics together, right. they're into yeah. art together. Mm-hmm. Um, but Do the Right Thing is, like, an amazing movie, and if you've never seen it, like, you definitely you should watch it. So, I do want to kind of talk about one piece of criticism from Dave Kerr. It's uh-huh. actually Kerr. writing in the Chicago Tribune for this, as opposed to the Chicago Reader, so it's a more full-length review that he actually gives of this movie. <clears throat> and he talks about the nuance through most of the film, and kind of commends throughout most of the film the nuance that's there. And he says that the nuance goes out the window as the movie approaches its climax. And the need to ignore the nuances seems even to be Lee's point. The racial tension we've seen building slowly all day explodes in a senseless fight at Sal's place. The cops are called in one of the neighborhood hotheads. A hawking kid whose blaring boombox has earned him the name Radio Rahim is killed in it. It's Mookie who picks up the garbage can and tosses it through Sal's window, touching off a full-scale riot. Lee seems to regard the riot as a legitimate expression of the neighborhood's pent-up anger, the only possible response to the young man's murder. The riot is as strangely sanitary as the streets. No one is hurt or killed, and as Mookie points out the Sal on the morning after, the insurance company will cover the damage to the property. Violence and do the right thing seems to be purely therapeutic, a way of blowing off steam without real-world consequences. Lee doesn't have the courage to go any further to explore what would happen if Sal or one of his sons had been killed or more of the black kids had suffered, as Mookie only watches from the sidelines. 
that would mean alienating the white audience as it stands. It says, if Sal had simply made a financial contribution to the cause as any good white liberal would, and it would mean making the violence too realistic, too immediate. The riot wouldn't be a, quote, healthy outlet, unquote, any more but a devastating disruption. There's a creeping dishonesty at the center of do the right thing, an insistence on seeing violence as a liberating symbol rather than a debasing reality. If Lee's film weren't otherwise such a shrewd and sympathetic piece of filmmaking, its lie would, wouldn't seem so disturbing. But it is, and it does. So... Dave Kerr just doesn't understand, I don't think. What does he understand exactly? All right, so, Jesus. <laughs> the tragedy of that is not the riot itself, it's Radio Raheem's death. And I don't know enough about, like, the history of the time to know the people they're talking about. But they start yelling people's names that have also suffered the same fate. Sure. But none of those people, those people are, it, they're still a community. And they don't want to hurt or kill Sal and his sons, but they need to do something. Like, that's their feeling is that some recompense needs to come from that happening. And it's not, it's not like liberal white guilt on the part of Sal. It's, it's them. It's number one. It's Mookie's like saving Sal's life. Like I'm firmly convinced that that's the reason like the Mookie adroitly reads the tenor of the crowd and knows that they need something in order to disperse. And it's either going to be the senseless tragedy of a person being hurt or killed or the ultimately far less tragic destruction of, you know, this pizza joint. And that's what he does. And that's like, none of those people hate Sal. That's the thing. Like they defend that man throughout the entire movie, but they can't fight the cops. They can't go and like actually take their frustration and aggression out on the people that are the real like culprits of this they just have to like do what they can to like you know like they have to do something and that's like i think the like the genius of like the title of the movie to do the right thing because that's mookie doing the right thing and then leading into him spending the night with tina and his son which is also him, like, finally doing the right thing because he's never done it, like, presumably for his child's life. And, like, it's just, like, I don't... That's a contemporaneous review, I assume, right? It is. Like, I guess... I mean, again, like, when I watched this movie, mm-hmm. what, probably three years after it came out, mm-hmm. I had a pretty similar feeling to how Dave Kerr felt. Mm-hmm. But I was a fucking whatever, like, 15-year-old white kid from the middle of the country. Like, I didn't, like, know anything about racial tension or anything like that, so I didn't understand it. And I think, like, I would I would feel like somebody like Dave Kerr, who was, like, a grown man at the time, should have, like, a little more understanding of, like, context and nuance in terms of that scene. I think that scene's incredibly nuanced mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, every aspect of it, I think, is, like, brilliantly nuanced. So, I don't know. I mean, 
I just think he doesn't understand, like, complex narrative, and I don't think he understands, like, subtlety at all. I think he just sees, he sees the act of the riot as being, like, the focal point of that scene, and it's more the reactions of the people in the riot and around the riot that are the focal point of the scene. That's what matters. Right. It is, it, you know, because Sal and his sons go behind a fence and just watch it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not in any danger. They're not, like, fighting people off. Like, those people they are... didn't. They didn't kill Radio Rahim. Right. The, the, the culprits are now gone. Right, and the, again, to my point... Which is always the way it is. Like, to you my know? point, like, those people can't go fight the cops. Sure. Even though, like, they're yelling out the names of people that have been the victims of the same thing. Right. You know, but they have to get, they have to get something. Like, they have to get some measure of, like, satisfaction from a senseless act. And that's, that's the thing they do. And that saves Sal and his son's life, lives. Mm -hmm. Even if you could argue that, like, most of, like, that's another great thing about this movie. And, like, we we should, like, stop soon because we're talking about it forever. But, like, there's no easy culprit. You can't say, I mean, you can ultimately look and say, like, bugging out, like, causes, but there's so many, like, everyone has their hand in, like, making that happen, so that no one is fully culpable and no one is fully blameless. Sure. Even to the point of, like, the mayor and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Like, Well, even if if people hadn't been as dismissive of his grievances... It might have turned out differently. Here's another thing, too, because you asked about Ruby D. Yeah. Ruby D is portrayed like she portrays herself as pious and above reproach and right. motherly, like matronly the entire time. Mm-hmm. And she's screaming, like, burn it down, sure. burn it down. Sure. Like she's yeah. just as much wrapped up in that moment right. where the mayor is the one, like the shiftless drunk is the guy who saves a kid's life mm-hmm. and pulls her back and is trying to calm down yeah. this crowd. And it just, I don't yeah. know, like it's top to bottom. Like I think well, he's also the, the one that tells Mookie to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Let's go ahead and move on to number one movie on your list, which is 1993 Richard Linklater film dazed and confused starring Jason London, Rory Cochran, Mila Jovovich, Ben Affleck, Matthew McConaughey, um, and Wiley Wiggins. Uh, it has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 90% from audiences. Can we go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? So to me, all right, this movie is objectively not as good of a movie as Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. But from the perspective of being a movie about summer, like this is the perfect encapsulation of like, what I call, like, the last day of school feeling. I mean, because ultimately it's only about, like, the last day of school and the night that, like, follows it. Um, Group of juniors and incoming freshmen in Texas in the late 70s um, going through the last day of school, getting out of school, and then spending the evening, like, finding something to do, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Takes place in... A roughly 23, 24-hour period. Um, probably 24 hours if you, like, take 
the last scene of them driving down the road and equate it to probably being about like seven or eight o'clock in the morning, which would be like the very beginning when they're all coming to school. Um, follows like a number of different storylines. The main ones being um, these two young kids uh, who are this young girl and this young boy who are kind of being hazed and sort of like being groomed by the older kids to be like the next generation of like whatever like popular kids in the school um the football team uh who are being forced to sign this no sex no drugs no alcohol pledge and their star quarterback who ideologically because he's a pothead and he drinks doesn't want to sign it um and then this group of like kind of like tertiary smart like nerdy kids who are sort of like not rejected or not ignored but kind of just don't really matter like even though like they're sort of accepted and people know who they are they don't like they don't play sports they're on the school newspaper they don't really do drugs or drink or anything they're pretty wholesome and them like trying to fit in and you know like find some manner of satisfaction like moving into their senior year um it feels i mean like i didn't i wasn't like i wasn't i didn't play sports my senior like in my in high school um but it feels like how summer was you know where you have all these plans and all these things you want to do but what you end up doing is basically like hey let's go to this place and hang out like oh there's these people here we know let's leave and go do this thing and we'll drive around for a few hours and then like, oh, we're just going to end up back at this place again. Um, A lot of the bullying in the movie is pretty similar to like things that happened when I was in high school, Um, especially with like the sort of hazing of incoming freshmen by people that were seniors. Um, Not not to the extent of this movie, but you know, I mean, similar. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really good look, I think, at like, what is what exactly does like the fleeting success of high school really have to do with the rest of your life and you really see that in the um McConaughey character um right I can't remember his name uh Wooderson yeah Wooderson who's former football star who's now just a guy that works for the county um who has a nice car and who's still like banging freshman girls and like, you know, it's implied that he's probably going to end up in jail someday for doing so and mm-hmm. refuses to kind of give up on the life that he had, but still seems like really cool to these people because he could buy booze and, you know, he'll drive around with them and hang out. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh, Pink, who's the quarterback character, um, they're at this party at this moon tower. So it's like out in the woods and they're sitting in a truck and the one his one of his football playing like teammates is basically telling him like, you really just have to sign it. Like, it doesn't matter if you sign it, we need you because we're going to like, maybe we can win States next year or something like that. And pink is like, well, I don't believe in it. Like, I don't want to sign it. And this kid, like, it's really angry and is like, you know, if you don't sign this, if you don't play football next year, you're making the biggest mistake of your life and you'll regret it forever. Yeah. And like, as an adult, like you look back on a statement like that and think like, man, like, no no decision like that that I made in high school 
had any real lasting effect on my life over the course of like 20 plus years. But you also can feel like personally, like I can feel like remembering times like that where I thought like, oh my God, like I have to do this or I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life or I have to hang out with these people or go to this party or, you know, like sacrifice whatever to do all this stuff because it matters so much. And on both sides of that equation, like really, I mean, ideologically, like he might have problems with it. What does it matter signing that document? What does it matter if he doesn't play football? Like none of those things matter. But like, ultimately I think that's the, the point of the movie is that none of the events of that movie really matter in the grand scheme of things because they're all so small, but to each of those individuals, like they seem big, you know, like the freshmen are so afraid of like O'Banion and his crew, like paddling them when like ultimately it's just over and then it doesn't matter anymore. And you know, the, um, fuck, I can't remember that actor's name. The guy that plays the, he wears plaid the whole time and he's like the, um, the newspaper guy who's like obsessed with the idea that like he's wasting his life and he needs to have action. Like he needs to do something. Adam Goldberg. Yeah. Adam Goldberg. Yeah. Like he needs to force something to happen. Mm-hmm. Like none of the things that he does, like it doesn't even matter. Like he gets in the fight with the guy cause he wants to prove that he's not like a coward. Right. And nobody even cares like five minutes after, except to make a joke calling him like Ali, you know, right. Even the kid that he got in the fight with never comes back because that kid doesn't matter. And it's just, I don't know, like, I feel like it's, I feel like it's really, like, one of the most perfect looks at, like, like, that dichotomy of high school. Like, especially when you're that age and you're, like, prepubescent, pubescent, you know, like, growing into adulthood and how you just feel like everything is so grand that you're dealing with and you can't realize that there's, like, an entire world outside of this little sphere that like you live in. And Wooderson is the perfect example of that because he refuses to leave that sphere. But like, you know, when the cop like flags him at the end and like, you know, calls the coach on him and when, you know, when they're hanging out on the, the football field, you know, here's a guy who's a police officer who's basically like working for the city, just like Wooderson is Mm -hmm. and is kind of mocking him. And Wooderson's response is, Oh, you're just jealous. Cause like, I whatever like I did this in high school and you didn't but like it's such a such an empty boast at that point you know I don't know like I link letter to me is is hit or miss and I probably like more link letter movies than I don't like um but I really love this movie and I think it's I don't know I just I I feel like it's almost like a perfect movie in its small like narrow role of what it's trying to be if that makes sense yeah narratively like it's a mess i mean i i don't so is is the thing i'm supposed to take away from the movie then like just kind of the sense of what am i supposed to take away from this movie because you're right narratively it's a mess and therefore i have some problems with it right so so link letter at his best this is just me talking out of my ass from like seeing like a lot of his movies at his best link letter gives you 
feelings and emotions and does so without forcing narrative into anything. Like, the best things about the before, or the whatever you call that trilogy, mm-hmm. the Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy trilogy, is there's no real no real plot beyond two people living moments of their life together. And I think that's why it's so effective because it feels like you're really like experiencing the relationship in its different stages in all three of those movies. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is the same way. Like you're just, I mean, it's a huge cast and you're just experiencing little moments of these people's lives. And I really like, so when this movie came out, or shortly thereafter, it was a pretty, pretty big popular movie with people that were potheads mostly. Like most of the people I knew that loved this movie were super into like weed. Yeah. Um, I noticed the same thing. Yeah. And so, like, I originally kind of had had a distaste for this movie as a result because that wasn't me. Right. And even though I didn't have any problem with that, it was like I just felt like okay, well, like that's what your movie's about. Like, who cares? But it's not really about that. That's just like the what's his name Slater or whatever um, character Stoner, I guess they call him. Mm-hmm. His whole life revolves around just like getting high. But what does it matter? Like he even says, you know, at one point, like he's talking about going to college and how that's going to be like like so much better than being in high school. Like, all the things that he's doing, like, being so excited about getting high all the time and trying to, like, find weed and whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. And I think that's the ultimate point of Dazed and Confused is that... Nothing matters. Right. <laughs> like, well, nothing that, like... That the things that you feel are... Of, like, utmost importance in the moment ultimately don't matter in the grand scheme of things of your life. Especially when you're that young. Sure. Okay. I think. I don't know. I mean, that's what I take away from it. Okay. And it also, like, again, like, I think... it's a fine explanation. I mean, I... I just just never got the thing about this movie, and that that could just be me, but I just never got it. I mean, it really does feel like summer to me. Yeah. Like, this is... Like, my friends and I would... Seriously, we would, like... Let's go to Newark. So, we drive up to Newark. Right. We'd hang out in Newark for a couple hours. Like, ah, oh, there's nothing going on. Let's go. Let's drive over to the mall. And then there we go driving over to the mall. Because there's like, oh, there's like, there's a party at this house. Do you want to go to this person's house tonight? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we don't know if we're going to go. Like, should we go? Like, maybe we'll just go hang out back at your place. And like, it's like feeling like those things matter. But like looking back on it and just realizing that what that was was just the ultimate freedom from any real responsibility like even if you had a job or whatever because i worked sometimes when i was in high school like ultimately your whole entire like every day was just this open canvas and all you did was like drive from place to place and like kind of waste your time but like you know like the the kid that's like being groomed is kind of like the next pink character the kid played that's the the pitcher yeah yeah mitch like He's so worried about fitting in and, like, doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, is pretty cool about how he handles things and gets, like, the sophomore girlfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
doesn't matter what he's doing. You know what I mean? Like none of that stuff is important. So I, I, I just, again, like I think link letter is best is about nostalgia and emotion and pulling those reactions out of you. And I think you have to have a connection to it. And a good example of like me not having a connection to it is the spiritual successor to this movie, which is everybody wants some, which I, it came out in like 2016, but I just watched it for the first time yesterday. And I hated it. Like, I thought it was terrible. And it's basically the same loose narrative structure, but it's got a little more narrative in it. But the characters are so unrelatable to me that it just completely falls flat. Hmm. Which, in like, a lot of ways, like, I can understand your criticism of it. I just can relate to this movie more than I can relate to that movie. Hmm. Which is why I think the Before Trilogy works so well, because everyone's had some kind of, like... yeah. Like one day romance. I just like look that. through his filmography. It's the only things I like that he's ever done. You don't like suburbia? Nope. I like suburbia. Don't like that. Don't like slacker. I like slacker. And there's a bunch of other things like that I don't even think you like, but uh I don't really have an opinion on the Newton boys. Like it's just kinda there. Yeah. Um I like School of Rock just fine. Oh really? Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's whatever, it's fine. Um I like Scanner Darkly. I haven't watched the other one, Waking Life. Um, but I'd like to. Um, what else is he done? Like, I like some... I really want to watch Boyhood. Like, I've heard mixed things about Boyhood. Um, but I really would like to see it because it's a really amazing concept to me of, like, basically filming a movie over 12 years, like, following the same people. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh my God, he did that Bad News Bears remake. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I haven't seen anything else. That's really all I know. I should watch Boy. Maybe I'll watch Boyhood tomorrow. And just see what I think. Yeah, I'm like just I not, said, like I'm look, just not a fan of the guy. Right. When he's when it works, I think it works really well. And when it doesn't work, I think it's like... I think it works in pieces. I mean, I don't think this is a bad movie. I just think it's a really uneven movie that, make you said, maybe I can't connect to it. And um, I think I I think I think hold something against it for the type of people that loved it so much when I was younger. I understand and that. I, I just think there's like, you know, there's just... And I just don't think I like Richard Linklater that much. I mean, I just don't I, I like his him, stuff. I like him less after reading more about him, I think. Like, I wish I hadn't read hmm. some, like, biographical things about him. Because yeah. it kind of, like, tints my view of him hmm. in a sort of negative way. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing I told you all fair was, too, is that... There's certain things like um, Freaks and Geeks, like even though it's a TV show, like I've seen this done better, like right. a, like after this came out, and like this is important. Like don't get me wrong, like this is like the the criticisms stupid. Like I'm not even going to get into it. Like but the guy like compares it as being like this generation's American graffiti. And I don't think he's entirely, like, off there, but then, like, spends the whole damn review comparing it to American Graffiti and why American Graffiti is basically better um, in, like, every way. But I think this is important because it's the first time you really get, I think, a slightly more realistic look at, like, what high school life is really like. 
Right. And, and this is this during is after... that during roughly that time period that we're talking about, like you know, sure. it's like I think Freaks and Geeks like actually creates characters that you care about, like all the way throughout. Also, using the two different, like uh, you know, the seniors, juniors versus the freshmen, stoners, right, nerds, yeah, with but the jocks mixed. But in I a think bit. like everybody to some degree is kind of likable in different ways, and they actually have. And look, it's a TV show, so you can get away with, right. you know, more like the having narrative arcs and stuff like that. But right. it's like, I think that's the biggest thing I'm missing is that I just don't think there's really strong any kind of narrative arc for me to understand what I'm taking away from this. And while your explanation makes complete sense to me, it's probably pretty accurate. Like, I don't know. Like, I just. I mean, it's not for everybody. I yeah, understand that. Right. And I just... But I don't think it's a bad movie, and I think it has some really good scenes in it and stuff like that. Like, it's look, just, it's, I, it just doesn't gel for me, I guess. I love Freaks and Geeks. And I love Freaks and Geeks a lot because, like, even though those kids are in high school, yeah. like, that's when I grew up. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, and even though I was a little young for that time period, like, I know those people. Still. Like, the, you know, the whole thing like, with, like, playing with toys. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I remember... Sure very distinctly like being guilted into like selling all my toys because like I was like 12 or 13 and I couldn't you know like when they're there playing with whatever it is like their Star Wars figures or whatever and yeah. they get in the argument like the, Neil and uh Neil and Sam like getting in the the weird like slap fight yeah over the um chemistry set or whatever right yeah like Freaks and Geeks is one of the and greatest. I can relate like little things with Bill sometimes, like the fact that he's right. like, a, like it's like he's this kind of watching like, Dallas and eating, watching Dallas eating cereal. I watched fucking Falcon Crest, you know, so like look. I mean, when I was a kid, it's like coming home and like grabbing a bowl of cereal and like watching the TV and watching Gary Shanley and just laughing, which is one of the saddest, but like also like more hopeful damn scenes in that whole right. thing somehow, like like those kind of things I can connect to, and I I just feel like this movie's missing moments for me to connect to people like i just don't feel connection to the movie i guess yeah i mean and i i do yeah like i feel connections right. to some of those characters yeah like especially um the freshman kid because i hung out with older kids mm -hmm. sometimes and yeah. the newspaper kid yeah he was the one that i felt most connected to was the younger one. yeah mitch yeah, mitch yeah the newspaper kids like where you're yeah. Like, not necessarily in that circle, but, like, sometimes you move into that mm -hmm. circle because, of like, people you know. Yeah. I mean, like, all that stuff, you know? Right. And, like, sitting, like, on the side of a road, like, making out with somebody at, like, 5 o'clock in the morning when you should have been home. You know, I mean, like, that was stuff that I did, like, as yeah. a teenager. And so I... I don't know. I mean, again, like, I completely understand your criticism. I completely understand why you don't like it. I don't think it's fair to compare it to Freaks and Geeks. I think that's like apples and oranges, especially because like Days and Confused isn't a 12 hour long movie, you mm -hmm. know, whereas Freaks and Geeks has an entire season right, sure, to build yeah. those things. Yeah. It's it's an unfair comparison, but I just feel like connection wise, I, I've seen it done better and narratively sure. I've seen it done better. So and again, like I don't this movie isn't going to be on my I don't even know, like. <sighs> what other lists this movie would make but in terms of like just giving me the feeling of like summer understood yeah. like i think it's the perfect yeah. last day of school endless possibility of summer movie which used to be the greatest feeling in the world to me when i was a teenager right okay um 
So that's it for tonight's episode. We will be coming back here in the next couple of weeks with um, something a little different than usual, where we will be, rather than looking at the best movies of a certain genre, we will be looking at the worst, and we will be looking at the top five worst horror remakes of all time. And then we will be back at the end of the month with the 1986 horror list, um, the horror movies list. So, and then next month we have, whew, trying to think, what, best of 2004? Right. Um, 70s science fiction? I'm and, excited for that, actually. You know, third Man and um, 87. So Is we it have the, a, the Easter Third Man? Is we have to figure one? we have to figure that out right. through schedules right now because it's summer and everything's yeah. up in the air right now. So um, endless possibilities, right? Yeah. Uh. Right. <laughs> so uh, remember, um, if you have any feedback for us, uh, go ahead and um, you can get a hold of us on Facebook. Uh, you can also email us at two guys five movies at gmail dot com. It's number two and five two guys five movies at gmail dot com. You can also Remember to, um, we'd really appreciate it. Any kind of likes or shares, whether it's the Facebook page, whether it's the posts, you know, um, you know, and you can also leave feedback or, um, like on any of the, um, podcaster like type apps that are out there that you're listening on right now. So thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Yep. Thank you very much.